Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, well... The island's just past the six-year mark, so I want to thank everyone who's supported the show, from listeners, those that have donated and bought merch, to my moderators on social media. Thanks to all those other podcasters as well that have helped along the way. It's been a long journey, and I won't go on too much, but you are the reason I keep going on. It is your podcast, and I'm just blown away that it's the second longest continual running true crime podcast in Australia. Thank you very much. Okay, so this week we have a senseless murder of a teenage girl from over 50 years ago, 1971 to be precise, in Hamilton, Victoria, Australia. References today are from The Age, Court Records, The Herald Sun, The Courier Mail, The Standard and The Canberra Times. Canberra. Okay, so this case, it's going to bring on the rage, not only for the crime itself, but also the prison terms that will ultimately be served by the scum perpetrators. All right, so first we go back to 1970, Hamilton, Victoria, a tiny little town about 300 kilometres or about a four-hour drive west of Melbourne. Hamilton was quite conservative, having a small population of around 10,000 people. It had one main street and was surrounded by rolling, grazing country. It did have a pool hall and a pinball arcade for the teens. Now, it also had a few bikies and hippies in town. And it's funny, when I was researching this, it actually said would-be hippies. In fact, it's nearly Christmas and shop assistant Charles, or Clive Ian King, yet to turn 18, was drinking with his mate, bricklayer Christopher Russell Lowry, 19. And they were at the motorcycle race being held at Mac Park, Mount Gambier in South Australia. Now, as the beer flowed, they weren't thinking about the races or a Merry Christmas or how they were going to spend New Year's Eve. They were discussing what it would be like to kill a chick. Yes, that's right, what it would be like to kill a chick. For the next five weeks or so, their evil thoughts would ultimately turn into reality. It's Sunday afternoon around 6.30pm on the 31st of January when 15-year-old Rosalind Mary Nolte left her Lonsdale Street home to walk her dog. It was a little corgi named Jody. Now, she'd planned to show Jody at Warrnambool Dog Show the next day. Rosalind was a sweet little girl, happy and full of fun, according to her mum, June Nolte. She went on to say she was at that age when young people know everything in the world. Now, Rosalind had learned ballet at an early age and was naturally talented. She wasn't the best at school sports, being hampered by bronchitis. She loved to ride horses and show her dogs. She played guitar and sang along. She made her own clothes and had won awards for needlework at various shows. She wanted to be a hairdresser when she left school. Anyway, Rosalind told her mum that she would be back in an hour after the walk and the dog. She walked out the door and headed towards the shops along Grey Street, and that's just a couple of streets down from her home. 
Rosalind and a corgi were seen entering the penny parlour on Grey Street. Now, it wasn't the first time Rosalind had been to the penny parlour or the pool hall. She sometimes met fellow pupils from the Mary Knoll Catholic College as well as some of the boys in town there. Now, one night she came home with a Hell's Angels badge, which her mum took off her and warned her not to get mixed up with the bikies. But there were, as I said before, a few hippies with bare feet, hair stuck out like a dirty mop and scruffy. Now, I don't call these people hippies. I call these festies. These festy types. Well, festy as in festering sore were not considered dangerous in any way and they were just about tolerated in town. So Rosalind is seen leaving the penny parlour and then she disappears. Now, this next bit I might sound a bit strange, but given it was the 70s and most kids stayed out until dinner time and walked miles to school, it's understandable in the context of the whole thing. Okay, so Rosalind leaves, leaves home with her dog Jody at around 6.30pm Sunday Arvo. She tells her mum she's going to be about an hour or so. Now, her mum raises the alarm that she's missing before midnight and calls police. Now, there was some things in newspapers that she didn't call till the next morning, but she did. She called before midnight. They do a bit of, of a search around town, the cops, the usual places where teenagers are going to hang out, the penny parlour, the pool hall around that area, not that it's open, but around that area. Plus they drive around and they can't find her. Now, checks on a friend's places yield nothing. The cops tells, tell June not to worry. She's probably just going to turn up in the morning. Now, June, Rosalind's mum, is listening on Radio 3HA the next morning and hears a lost dog announcement. Now, a farmer had found a little corgi with a leash wandering around a bush track about 8 miles or 13 kilometres south of Hamilton. The lost dog was confirmed to be Rosalind's dog, Jody, and police concentrated their search down along the Hamilton Port Ferry Road. Along with the search, police are interviewing locals, including local kids, to try and find out her last movements. There had been Port Ferry bikies in town that night, and the pubs have been closed. Just back in the day, some might remember this, pubs could only serve bona fide travellers on a Sunday. Now, that's a whole different story. I'm not going to get in why that was. But once they did lift that sort of bona fide travellers thing, there was a lot less drink driving. Now, it was the thing for local guys to do is park their cars down Grey Street and watch what was called the Chicken Parade, where the local girls would get dressed up with nowhere to go, walk up and down the street looking at their reflections in the shop windows. Now, several people saw Rosalind walking along Grey Street with a dog. She was wearing a favourite blue and white flecked faded jeans, a purple jumper with gold buttons, campus boots and a leather choker she'd made herself. Rosalind was seen talking to occupants of maybe one or two cars and they did see her get in one car, a blue E.H. Holden panel van that made its way down Grey Street around 8.30pm. By chance, a policewoman, Constable Overend, was visiting her next-door neighbours, the King family, and asked if they knew anything about Rosalind's disappearance, if maybe she had a boyfriend that no one knew about or anything that would help them find her. Now, Charles King said, 
He didn't know her that well, but he and Christopher Lowry had picked her up in Lowry's blue E.H. Holden panel van and had dropped her near the commercial hotel at 64 Lonsdale Street. Then, on the morning of the 3rd of February, police standing in the back of a four-wheel drive driven by a farmer see track marks in scrubland near Mount Napier State Park. Now, they follow these tracks into a grassy hollow and discover a bound and bruised body. It was Rosalind Nolte. She was naked except for a pair of socks. Some of her clothes were flung around. Her jumper was hanging in a low branch of a tree just a few feet away. Her bra was not far from her head. Her feet were bound with electrical wire and her arms were bound with the same wire behind her. Another length was tied around her neck six times in a manner that possibly she slowly strangled herself in her struggles. Now, her body was bruised and her face was battered from a brutal kicking that she'd suffered, which made her barely recognisable. She also suffered a broken and dislocated elbow. A post-mortem examination would reveal that she'd not been raped, which caught the police a little bit off guard as they assumed this would be the motive for her abduction and murder. As King and Larry were the last to see Rosalind, they were taken downtown and questioned. On the 6th of February, after more than six hours of questioning, Charles King and Christopher Lowry were charged with Rosalind's murder. Now, Lowry, he was married to a Hazel Bray, who was at the time of Rosalind's murder, seven months pregnant. Now, he was stocky, five foot six, but well built, big shoulders and powerful arms. Acquaintances said he looked nervous, his face constantly in motion, blinking, with his eyes twitching and darting about. Larry and Hazel were planning to leave their Stephen Street house for a newer place close by. Now, a friend said they were surprised he could do anything like murdering a girl, but then they conceded that he was also mad enough to do it. There was this one incident where the E.H. Holden van that his dad bought him had once been involved in a small accident and Lowry reported the vehicle to the police as stolen so not to get yelled at by his dad. But he was caught out in his lies and the matter wasn't taken any further. And he'd even used Charles King to back up his story. They both attended Hamilton Tech High and left at year 10 or fourth form as it was known back then. Now King, on the other hand, was six foot tall, long haired with a beard. He would get around town with a leather jacket and boots trying to look a bit like a bikey. He was extremely good at doing technical drawings, but only average at best at other academic pursuits. Now, those that knew him said he was a follower rather than a leader. He did have work with the PMG or the Postmaster General. It wasn't so much the work he didn't like, but the fact that they ended up sending him to Melbourne to do his job. He just hated it. But it's here that he found friends that were into drugs. He eventually left the PMG and returned home to Hamilton, where he got a job as a shop assistant. Now, I think that was with his sister at Thompson's. So these two cretins are charged with Rosalind's murder. And guess what? They point to each other as the main instigators of the crime. At trial... Lowry emphasised his good character and said that because of the fear of King, he'd been unable to prevent the murder. Now, King said that he'd been under the influence of drugs and had been powerless to prevent Lowry from killing Rosalind. Now, King, he was allowed to call a psychologist as to their respective personalities. 
And on that evidence, to ask the jury to conclude that it was less probable that he was the killer. Now, King said he was unclear as to what had happened. He couldn't remember much and that he came across Lowry with Roslyn in the scrub. He said that Lowry put the electrical wire around her throat. The psychologist, Professor Cox of Melbourne University, who had interviewed and tested both Lowry and King, concluded that King was impulsive, in denial, lacked self-control and empathy and had inadequate impulse control. He said he seemed likely to be led and dominated by more dominant personalities. Now, he said about Larry, on the other hand, he had a strong, aggressive drive with weak control, little capacity to relate to others, and was ostentatious, callous, impulsive, and possibly sadistic. So, they had the guts to go out and randomly pick an innocent 15-year-old girl off the streets, torture her, bind her arms, leg and neck in a manner that she strangled herself. But when faced with a justice hammer that's about to come down on them, they point the blame at each other. They're scum. Just scum. Anyway, both are going to get convicted. Now, those that saw them on the night of the killing after they'd murdered Rosalind say that they pretty much seemed normal and not really out of character. They even went to a midnight drive-in with Larry's pregnant wife and a couple of girls as if nothing had happened. In fact, earlier on in the night, 19-year-old Kavina Marilyn Butterworth had been walking down Grey Street when King and Larry offered her a lift in Larry's panel van to Shakespeare Street. Now, Larry asked her while she was in the back of the van, what's it worth for him to take her home? I mean, Kavina replied nothing and passed it off as a joke. Then something came up about hitting a girl and she said, you wouldn't hit me. Then Larry hit her in the head and she ended up hitting him back. Now, when she got out of the panel van, he kicked her. I mean, that's just a nice piece of work. And you can imagine what he meant by what's it worth for him to take her home. So they get sentenced to death. Yes, Victoria had the death penalty at the time and both these scum were going to hang. But of course, they're going to appeal this. But they failed, with Lowry failing even right up to the Privy Council in England. Now, almost all death penalty verdicts in Victoria had over the previous decades been commuted to life in prison, with it being abolished in 1975 by the then Governor of Victoria, Sir Rowan Delacombe. Now, I did a series on The Last Man to Hang years ago. It was Ronald Ryan who was hanged on the 3rd of February, 1967. So King and Lowry's sentences would be commuted to 60 years with a non-parole period of 50 years. In fact, their papers were marked imprisonment for 60 years, not to be released or paroled for at least 50 years. Sounds fair, as they would be around 70 years old when their parole came up. But no... There would be further legislation passed and they would be able to apply for a new minimum sentence of 18 to 20 years. So guess what? After just 20 years in prison, they were released on Friday the 21st of August 1992, just on 20 years after being originally sentenced to death. 
The judge said he was satisfied that they both shown considerable remorse for their crime and had the capacity to make a worthwhile contribution to society. Now, they were only just on 40 years old. So they get to live the rest of their life free at such a young age or relatively young age, but only 20 years before they took the innocent life of Rosalind Nolte, who only had 15 years of life before they decided to see what it was like to kill a chick. Now, June Nolte, Rosalind's mum, she died only two years after her murder. Eileen Williams, Rosalind's aunt, told reporters on the release of King and Larry that June had died of a broken heart and that it was ridiculous that the men had gone free as they should have hung. Asked if they'd been rehabilitated, Eileen said, I don't know that a mind that can do those things could ever change. I don't think that any living being that could do that once could ever say that they would not do it again or something similar. They have been re-educated, but does that change their mind? Anyone in their right mind could not do it once. If you can do that, just for a thrill kill, not on the spur of the moment, but planned and premeditated, I would say you could do it again. That's pretty much it. Now, I found that after being released, both did some charity work with Charles King using his birth name of Clive King to evade police checks on him. Now, they're required for certain types of jobs. Now, he was a maintenance manager at Greenvale's Corpus Christi... I can't say it. Corpus Christi Hospice from 2003 for 11 years before his sudden resignation. And it looks like someone got close to outing him. He passed five checks over the time he was employed there, checks that would have disqualified him from working there as he was a convicted murderer. Now, staff and residents were shocked to learn of King's brutal criminal history. Now, I can imagine they were. I mean, fuck's sake. Anyway, it looks like he's still alive to this day. Christopher Larry, well, it wasn't long before he was in trouble. He changed his name to Christopher Russell and was involved in drugs and drug trafficking. In 1995, he was busted for selling drugs to police and carrying a knife. He did a couple of years for that. But why wasn't he put back in for for good? It's just so frustrating. Obviously, he must have breached his parole conditions over Rosalind's murder. In 1999, he threatened to kill a woman at a refuge. Now, he chased her down the street saying, you'll be dead, you slut. Now, he lived the rest of his pathetic life as a shoplifter and he ended up killing himself around 2007. Now, this case just blows my mind. Now, I know you'll all have different opinions on the death penalty, but they got what I thought was the next best thing. 60 years with 50 years non-parole. But then for them to get out after just 20 years, it just brings on the rage. Rosalind was just 15 when this scum decided they would go on a thrill kill. They abducted her under false pretenses of giving her a lift. They drive her out of town to some bushland. They hogtie her arms and legs with electrical wire and make a slipknot around her neck designed to tighten as she struggled. Then they just watched her die. After kicking her almost to death anyway, stomping her head, 
After that, they blame each other. Either of them could have stopped the other one at any time that night. But no, they wanted to see what it was like to kill a chick. Absolute scum that should have been left to rot in prison. Not rehabilitated and educated, then set free at an age where they had the potential to live another 50 years or so. You take a life like that, premeditated and for absolutely no reason other than to torture someone and watch them die, you deserve nothing, only a tiny cell to spend the rest of your life. Okay, so the Cambo Rage is alive six years on. That's all I have to say about this case. It's short, but straight to the point. Thanks to Jen for pointing out this little-known Aussie case and also a big thanks to Caroline Shaw for recording the female parts. That doesn't sound... That doesn't sound quite right. The voice of Eileen. Okay, so I'd like to thank my patrons past and present for keeping the lights on on the island. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, that's all you need. Just check out patreon.com forward slash true crime island. Or if you want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash true crime island. A free beer is always nice after dumpster diving into these cases. Just like Wanda Egan and John Kelly did this week. Thank you so much. Boom fuckalunga. That was for a sixth birthday present. Before we go, there's a book by my fellow podcaster friend, host and producer of Forgotten Australia, Michael Adams, called Hanging Ned Kelly. Now, it's a, I'll tell you a bit about it. When it came time to hang Ned Kelly, the job fell to crap carrier turned quack doctor turned drunken chicken thief Elijah Upjohn. Such is life indeed. Hanging Ned Kelly looks at the life and times, crimes and demise of Australia's most famous anti-hero from a new perspective, that of the rogue and vagabond who finally put the noose around his neck. Elijah Upjohn was the latest in a long line of flogging hangmen allowed to run amok because they do the dirty work that let officials keep their hands clean. Despite being duly appointed finishers of the law, Upjohn and his fellow boozing bunglers were so hated that they were hunted by angry mobs. As one writer asked, who shall hang the hangman? So check that out. At all good bookstores, I think September 27, it it is being released. I've also got a promo at the end of the episode. This is for another one of Mike Morford's shows, Citizen Detective. Now, Citizen Detective is hosted by Mike Morford, Alex Ralph, and cold case analyst Dr. D. Miller. Each episode of Citizen Detective is recorded live alongside armchair detectives and citizen sleuths. And the team is joined by special guests and experts from around the world of true crime in an effort to crowd-solve perplexing mysteries and cold cases. So check that out. But can I just ask you that you also take the time to share the podcast with your friends or even groups on Facebook, whatever. The Island is one of the few truly independent true crime podcasts out there and commercial-free, other than the fact that I might plug some of my mate's shows or books or whatever like that, which is only to help you out. Best of all, it's free of charge to help the island out. Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can stream each episode if you don't want to use iTunes or some sort of pod player. I've got links to everything there, the 
merch, social media, whatever. Also, if you want to talk to me, email me if you want to get in touch, just like Jen did and Caroline did. And there's Caroline's voice there now, and Jen suggested a great case. That's about it. Happy birthday, True Crime Island, six years old. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. As I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boomfuckalunga. Do you obsess over cold cases? Do you go down endless rabbit holes on online forums, searching for clues to solve your pet case? Are you an armchair sleuth? If so, we'd like to invite you to check out our new podcast, Citizen Detective. I'm Mike Morford. I'm Emma Cates. And I'm Dr. Lee Meller. We work hand-in-hand with Citizen Detectives just like you to examine some of the most puzzling unsolved mysteries out there. Citizen Detective is out right now, and new episodes drop every other Saturday. Subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of Citizen Detective.